Thank you. Uh, thank you for, first of all, of having me here, Burak, uh, from the evening at Helsinki. So we're at that same time zone. But yeah, so we were originally called rental and now we're called twice commerce. And uh, there's many reasons for the for the new name, but I think the most simplest reason is that we've just grown to be so much more than rental. So originally we were a rental platform. We really focused on, on rentals, uh, but we always knew that our core mission is to help extend the life cycle of goods, but in a way that ends up being more profit towards the merchants that uh, uh, sell those goods or the access to those goods. Now, we, as we have expanded to sales of refurbished goods and, and secondhand, we those four letters of our old name started to kind of limit a little bit of, 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 of our brand. And we tried to figure out what really under e-commerce, something that describes that in an in a easy and understandable way. And then we understood that it's at the end of the day, all about enabling someone not to sell stuff once, but twice or more. So we help you sell sell stuff more than once. And uh, I, we think that twice captures that perfectly. Uh, it's about doing something twice, because if you can do something twice, you can do it as many times as you want. Uh, so I think it's, was it Peter, Peter Thiel who talks about going from zero to one, being hard. We know that that's hard, but it's always going from once to twice in the world of retail. And if you can do go from once to twice, then all of the rest is easy. And we really want to help you get to twice. So. What problem does Twice Commerce solve for the merchants looking to start or grow the rental or circle commerce? And uh, uh, what is the new strategy? Sure. So when someone goes from linear commerce or, or from commerce to e-commerce, I think there's a couple of things that happen that makes those existing commerce platforms like uh, Shopify or Magento maybe a little bit harder uh, for the use case. In terms of what happens with order lifecycle is that it's not anymore pick, pack, and ship operation, but actually it's pick, pack, and uh, ship, and then receive. So usually you end up receiving a lot more stuff. And if it's buyback driven, you start with the receive, and then you have to do something for the stuff in order to sell it out. So you have this reverse logistics that's come into play. And, and that's where we as a fit for purpose commerce platform for e-commerce help merchants handle that inflow of goods, whether it's by design as part of a rental or whether it's buying stuff from the market. On top of that, as you start to do this circular order management, you end up getting back goods that have been once owned by someone. And that means that every good, essentially every item becomes a collectible. It has a unique usage history. It has a unique condition. Thus, it has unique value and price points in the market. And that has a lot of implications to your inventory management because all of a sudden, you know, you have two iPhones, but they're not equivalent. Uh, they're not the same anymore. So one might be almost good as used, uh, uh, good as new condition, and the other one might be have, have a little bit more scratches on the surface. So you have to price them differently, even though technically they are the same product. So all of a sudden, you have all of these complexities that you have to be able to manage and price your inventory on an article level rather than a. a, a aggregates, stock keeping unit, and these are the things that we solve for the merchants. But other than that, we are a commerce platform like anyone else. Uh, we offer merchants a, a ready-made online store, inventory management, product catalog management, everything that anyone needs to start, run, uh, start grow, and run their uh, e-commerce business. So how did you understand that the issue, problem facing, especially the merchant facing this uh, um, hard issue? 
or uh, what are the some most interesting merchants uh, using twice commerce or rental earlier days? Sure. So actually, we kind of built it for ourselves in the early days. So we 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 had a customer that wanted to uh, rent power banks at a at a gaming event, and um, we called through all of the payment terminal and commerce platform providers pretty much in, in Europe at that time and asked for a simple question that we just want to rent these things. We don't really want to sell them. We, we kind of need things like deposits and recurring charges and all of these things that are part of renting something as an event. And everyone told us that that could not be done. And we, as founders, we had a technical background. So we knew that with Stripe and uh, uh, other payment uh, services, we could actually build that. So we ended up building this MVP of our rental system for ourselves for that specific event. And from that point, we kind of understood that this is actually needed elsewhere also. So we ended up going to the largest ski resort in, in Nordics, uh, walking in, asking them that, how do you actually manage your rentals nowadays? Uh, what kind of things you use? And we ended up seeing a lot of paper contracts, a lot of manual payments, a lot of things done in a manual way, or then entrepreneurs kind of combining five to 10 different solutions, some proprietary custom built, some existing booking calendars or whatnot in order to somehow digitalize their business. And we, we kind of looked at that and understood that this is extremely underserved market. Uh, and at the same time, when we talk with the end users, the consumers, everyone wanted rentals or everyone wanted secondhand. So kind of the demand was there and also the supply side really wanted to offer those. So we started to look at this more on a system level and figured out that maybe it's not about supply, maybe it's not about demand, maybe it's actually the geeks like us that who who just have not built the software infrastructure that is needed to facilitate such transaction where it's used goods or pre-loved goods or rentals that are are being uh, uh, done. So that's how we kind of ended up there. And, and in terms of what are the funniest or craziest things where we've seen it, I think if you can think about it, we've seen it <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as, a, as a model. So um, what are the most uh, merchants using uh, um, twice commerce nowadays? Uh, so it, it, if, if you're asking in terms of numbers, we have over 20,000 merchants already in the platform. Uh, and then majority of those, if we look at the uh, transactions going going through the uh, uh, platform, most of those are still existing rental uh, industries. So there's a lot of sporting goods. We have customers like Decathlon from UK that are renting bikes and, and, and various other sporting goods to their customer customers. Uh, but now we're seeing as, as we are more and more supporting secondhand sales and refurbished sales, we're seeing more uh, other industries also take off. So electronics and 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 uh, audio and video equipment, for example, and clothing, of course, is a is a big big growing market. So how do you see this circular economy, commerce industry, evolving in the next five years time, or rental second uh, uh, also hand uh, sales? Sure. Uh, well, we are big big believers that similar to e-commerce, there's there's roles for the micro merchants and then there's a big role for the existing in incumbents. So we are seeing an, an, a kind of a wave of, of new generation of, of merchants, millennials or Gen Zs that whose business idea and brand is from day zero designed for selling used goods or renting them out. So they can be the ones like Grover, Swappy, 
there's Spring in the UK. Uh, there's a lot of these kind of emerging bigger uh, brands or Camera Store is a good example. Uh, then at the same time, we're seeing larger brands like Decathlon trying to figure out how can they be more sustainable? How can they kind of provide customers with better value, better access to goods with lower price points, making, for example, in Decathlon's case, sporting more accessible and more sustainable. Now, if you zoom out and think about how, how the change will happen, there's a couple of things that need to happen. First of all, platform providers like us, we, we need to remove a lot of friction from there. We need to help merchants actually kind of operate a world where everything that they push out ends up coming back to them. And they need a lot of help in terms of software there. There's also a other side of, of, of operate, oper operational things. So we, for example, only provide software. There's great companies like ACS Clothing in Glasgow that help then large merchants figure out how do you do refurbishment of clothes at scale. So it's kind of a beautiful dance, I think, between uh, software providers and infrastructure providers like us that only do bits and then actual operational operators like uh, ACS clothing, for example, enabling the fact that, you know, if I need to repair an iPhone or a repair a piece of fabric, those are a little bit of a different thing. So it's harder to maybe scale horizontally there than, than in linear commerce. So we see a lot of specialization, uh, except we believe in the, in the software layer, we can serve pretty much anyone uh, when it comes to this. So how many years passed um, launching uh, this venture, this venture, by the way? So we launched our MVP in 2019. So now it being 23. So it's 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 four years, uh, roughly. Of course, there were COVID and everything in between. And there's a lot of learnings there. Uh, but it's about four years of us looking at e-commerce and understanding that order life cycles and article life cycles and, and, and simplifying that into a commerce platform. So what motivated you start this venture, I mean, this company, rather than joining a startup uh, as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think for us, it was, it is kind of tagging all of the things that we wanted to do. So we we always wanted to build a technology company. We kind of wanted to work at Google or, or, or Apple, but we figured out it's easier to build one than to apply into one. Uh, the, the other one really for us was that we wanted to kind of empowers a uh, circular economy because we felt that commerce is extremely interesting. We love commerce. There's kind of, all of our world is built kind of uh, surrounded by stuff and, and we kind of, the things that, you know, make us who we are, that sofa there is, it's kind of, you, you've made a conscious decision to acquire that. And those make, uh, bring a lot of value to our life. But at the same time, we want to figure out how do we do it so that it doesn't come at the cost of the planet. Uh, because I, it is obvious that you know we need to do something about our consumption, otherwise we're gonna overconsume the whole world. So for us, it was that if we are able to figure out this decoupling of, of economical growth uh, from, from consumption of virgin material, we would be working on an extremely interesting problem space. And then every revenue dollar that we make represents improvement in the world. So once we kind of understood that and that we could do this at scale by building uh, a commerce infrastructure, I think we were hooked from that point of on that. This is this is the thing that, you know, when you wake up and you look at your dashboard and you see a merchant doing more sales, it's you're helping someone earn their living. And at the same time, you're helping them earn that living in a more sustainable way. So I think it's just checks all of the boxes that uh, we wanted to build in, in, in the world.
I mean, you tell very easy approach, something that uh, is seems to be easy, but I think there are challenges. What excites you about building a company and what are the daily challenges or struggles that you face? Yeah, there's, there's, I think there's too many to list them in a, in a, in a short <laughs> and, and a half an hour. But I think, of course, um, like probably this goes hand in hand with any venture capital backed like hyper growth company. Uh, but you're trying to do a lot of growth in an extremely short time. But for us, it's not only, you know, VC math that is forcing us to do that. It's also the kind of feeling that the world doesn't have time to wait. So we don't have 20 years to figure out how do we empower a circular economy. So you're trying to take something that might realistically take 20 years and you try to squeeze that into five to 10 years. Uh, so that brings a lot of challenges when it comes to kind of, you have to front load a lot of investment in R&D, a lot of investment in marketing, and you have to do make a lot of big bets on a daily basis. So I think the challenges really is that how do you do these leading bets uh, how do you do them bold enough and, and big enough uh, without losing trace that you actually need to bring also build value to your customers and so on. So it is this kind of how do you squeeze 20 years into into five years uh, in, a, in a way that you don't end up being kind of uh, or how you, how you how you're kind of efficient with all of your investing and bets. I think that's the challenge and it's every day. Kind of, if you try to squeeze twenty years into five years, it's almost like today I have to do four days worth of improvements. So <laughs> that, I think that's the that's the that's the challenge. It's it's kind of every time you have to four every email has to be four emails if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how are the board meetings? We have uh, a recent news that Sam Altman has in a, a successful company has been fired by the board. So is your board uh, also difficult? Uh, how is your board members and how are your uh, connections and also relationship with the board members? Well, uh, <laughs> I think that, that's, uh, I think I'm extremely lucky in this in, in terms of the board. So we have uh, extremely supporting board, but it's at the end of the day, it's, it is probably something that you have to every day earn or, or, or so. But uh, our board meetings, in my opinion, are working in the way how how it is fit for our stage of company, where essentially it's our job as the operative leadership to make sure that we are capable of presenting the business in a way that we can ask for help. And the board is there to help us and not, not you know, to just check our numbers and tell, go faster, go slower. So I think we're doing a great job if we can go to the board with clear asks and clear, you know, ways of asking for help, whether it's network, whether it's more investments or whether it's guidance. And for us, it has been working extremely well. Our board members uh, are kind of also tapping into the same belief. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, it's, it, it, it is working. We monthly kind of compile all of our numbers and, 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 and insights and wins and uh, trials. And then we try to ask for help in a, in a constructive way. So it is said that the startup's journey is a roller coaster like uh, so how do you motivate yourself in the hard days i think it's for me that probably everyone has their personal personal ways of how to go about it uh for me it's it's it is at the end of the day the company vision and mission that drives me forward it's it's kind of remembering that who are you doing this for uh in our case we have a quite strong mission also driving it uh, in, in, in helping the world become a more 
sustainable place in, in, in terms of sustainability. So I think there's this saying that um, we rent the lands from our children uh, or that societies grow kind of greatly when old men plant trees whose shade they're not able to uh, enjoy themselves. So I think for me, that's kind of at the end of the day, during those hard days, I actually try to remember that I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for for other people and, and the people that come come after us. So at least for me, that works. And then uh, those are those are the ways of how to get forward even on the tough days. And, and at the end of the day, also, as part of being a founder is that if you've been successful, you've been able to hire great people, people that are a lot smarter, a lot more capable than you are. Uh, so getting up in the morning, it's like any team sport. You're not getting up for yourself. You're getting up for the team. So that, that helps also. So is there a work and personal life balance, uh, or, uh, do you believe in that approach or, uh, do you do another approach? Uh, I do believe in, in work-life separation and balance, to be honest. Uh, but my reasoning comes from the place where, uh, I, I believe that if you are extremely tired, you end up solving extremely incre incremental problems. So you're you're kind of in the mode that you have one thousand tabs open in your in your screen, and you do incremental problem solving. Uh, and people that are tired do small problem solving. Now, people that have are more recovered and have more energy start to solve wicked problems because wicked problems, the ones where you don't you, you're not able to map them out like discreetly, but you just have like a real option pointing that way. In order to operate there, I think you need a lot of energy, a lot of headspace in order to figure out what's the big enough move. What's something that, you know, moves the needle on a, on a large scale. So I feel that you're not able to do that kind of moves unless you take care of yourself, unless you're recovered and so on. So that's a big motivator for me in, in terms of work-life balance, because, you, you know, if you just work over 24 hours, uh, you end up, kind of going to that incremental mo mode. And if you're trying to squeeze 20 years into four or five, that doesn't have with, happen with incremental moves. That happens with big bets that are in the large magnitude uh, and you need to be able to kind of do those. So that's my belief. So in, in, in terms of recovery. We have seen lots of successful companies uh, coming from Finland in last decade. So what is the, in your point of view, um, um secret behind this uh, successful uh, unicorns and startups yeah i i think it's a we've been lucky enough that we have quite a nice ecosystem that we have you know the success stories of nokia and the ones after from supercell to you know smartly vault and such so we we have a quite nice ecosystem and knowledge on how to build scalable large companies doing doing large impacts in their own industries. Uh, but at the same time, we're still a relatively small nation. You know, we're six million people. So once you go into the startup ecosystem, you know, it, it's almost like everyone's one or two phone calls away. So uh, it helps because then you can tap into the success or knowledge of other people more easily. Uh, another thing might be that I feel that Fins maybe by nature, we have X amount of grit. Uh, we, we just push through the hard days. And also we kind of, if, if we have a fault, it's probably the one that, you know, our financial models, they are they are what we actually believe that the numbers will be or even less. So if you look at, at a Finnish company's financial model, you should 2X the top line because we are maybe 
we actually, you know, report the numbers that we believe we have, which might have contributed into our success that uh, we really, really take it seriously when we take other people's money and build large companies. I don't know, maybe that's it. Uh, there's probably a lot better answers to that, but that's my two cents. So how is the entrepreneurship relationships? Do you uh, uh, help and support, assist each other as a founders? Are there any uh, meetings or uh, irregular meetings or WhatsApp groups that you are part of? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there are unofficial and official ones, but there's great you know, ecosystem players like the Finnish startup community that facilitate not only for founders, but also for the key oper operational uh, uh, people in, in, in scale-ups and startups. So you might have a meetup of you know, head of finances or meetup of the COOs and so on. So there's a lot of knowledge sharing between the companies and it's facilitated by great, great ecosystem players like the Finnish startup community. So that kind of two phone call away world that really exists, it's, it's maybe you have to overcome your, yourself rather than uh, there's no barriers in the system. So you just pick up the phone and people are more than willing to help. So, mm -hmm. and, and to be honest, uh, I think there's a lot of great entrepreneurs that have built the way to kind of a more international ecosystem. So really there starts to be nice bridges to uh, all over the world from, from the more kind of earlier success stories. So uh, it is a great environment to build a startup in my opinion. Does weather affect also the success of startups or uh, the uh, um, I mean entrepreneurs uh, mindset because I know that Finland is uh, uh, also cold and it is dark in the winter does it affect your uh, uh, daily life well certainly maybe now it's it's November it's it's quite dark already outside so maybe there's less distractions coming from the from, through the window maybe <laughs> but uh uh, yeah, I, I think it probably has its pros and cons. It, it is really kind of, it's easier to sit inside and, and ship the work. But at the same time, of course, uh, in, in a more sunny environment, you might be able to kind of, I don't know, recover faster. But I, there's probably studies on that. But I, I feel that, well, if it's something, it's a pro rather than a con. Uh, uh, I know that you have uh, difficulties for uh, in the first uh, year or in the first months of raising money. Did you have any rejections and how did you overcome these kinds of rejections? How many rejections from the VCs that you have uh, also uh, faced? Yeah, uh, well, like I, I usually, it's nice to look at things as challenges because then you figure out how to overcome them and they become opportunities. But it is my general belief that every time you go fundraise, you should be prepared to meet over 50 VCs or even close to 100. Because at the end of the day, uh, if you're truly trying to build something big, you're trying to squeeze that 20 years into four. There isn't venture capital is probably the only asset class that is willing to serve that kind of dreams and ambition. Uh, but at the same time, you know, fundraising kind of it's not supposed to be hard necessarily, but it kind of still is. So uh, for me, the assumption always is that fundraising is, is hard work and uh, it should be such because it makes sure that big ideas get funded and, and, and things that have that upside uh, inside them. So 
for me, I, I wouldn't say that we've seen challenges in fundraising. We've seen the same effort as anyone in the sense that no money, you know, grows on trees and just falls on your lap. And it, or if it does, you maybe you should be a little bit questioning why is the money falling into my lap without any effort. So I think it's a it's a healthy sign if you have to work uh, for fundraising. I see. So uh, what books or podcasts recently uh, do you find time to uh, read and listen? So. My, I think I always say the same thing, but I, I really love to listen to Acquired. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite podcasts when it comes to venture because in that podcast they do a great job in kind of going to these kind of deep dives behind the stories of like Walmart or or you know Costco or Nvidia uh, or even Shopify. I think those are great episodes in in understanding not only how those companies were built, you know that roller coaster story but also a little bit about the story behind the founders and 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 kind of the decisions that they made so i'm i'm hooked into acquired i i i listen to pretty much every episode if if i have the time and then also i try to you know get in a couple of uh, podcasts which wouldn't be only business oriented just to kind of sometimes have your brain somewhere else and and there to be honest i listen to conan o'brien needs a friend it's it's just a it is a great great kind of maybe it's a combination of both uh depending on the guests you know sometimes you even learn something about business there Tomo, if you could have a dinner with uh, any entrepreneur alive or historical who would you pick oh man that's hard uh Maybe now I would really like to sit down with Toby Lutke, the founder of Shopify. To be honest, I even <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of 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 how Shopify has, has kind of built their story and and what they're trying to enable in the world. So I would really really probably want to sit down with Toby. Uh, that's that's probably currently out of the live ones. Uh, of course, the world kind of the history is full of great entrepreneurs. Uh, it starts to be quite hard to choose which one from there. I think <laughs> it is the it, it is the ones that dream big and you know change the world world in 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 one lifetime. It's it's a it's a big thing. What is the best and most important business advice that you have received, and what would you like to give the entrepreneurs uh, listening to you? Well, I, I think there's. There's actually two that I have to probably mention. The first one is that uh, I think U.S. equivalent is that there's no free lunch, but at the same time, there's also kind of the idea that no number or no diagram improves by itself. Every like if you look at a financial graph or or an Excel, every improvement in numbers is someone some somewhere working extremely hard. So if you cannot if you look at your financial model and you see an improving graph or number and you, you can't tell who that is, then you have a problem. Either you're delusional or you don't know your company enough well. I think that's been a great advice. It's kind of acknowledges how hard things are. Uh, the other one really is about kind of passion. So if you're a passionate entrepreneur, maybe going to that recovery side, that passion is like fire. It's a, it's a great servant, not not a good master. So you have to kind of learn how do you Take that passion and you turn that into fuel that you control rather than you allow that to kind of uh, uh, drive you as the master because you that that way you will end up burning yourself out. So I think those two advices, remembering that passion is like fire and then the fact that nothing improves without someone working extremely hard somewhere uh, usually means that you're able to keep your uh, uh, legs on the ground even if your head is, is going to the clouds. 
Tomo, thank you very much. I enjoyed uh, this conversation and uh, thank you uh, thank you for uh, taking your time and giving lots of great answers. Thank you for having me, Burak.